Thanks everyone for joining us. I'm your MC, Mike. I'm the community manager here at manufactured.com. Um, what we do at Manufactured, we're an end-to-end -end inventory solution that helps brands with inventory financing and or sourcing and production. Um, our goal is to reduce your cogs while increase your inventory amounts. We're doing this webinar, obviously, in partner with uh, with Ro and Pietra, which we're really grateful for. Uh, Ro, thanks so much for for being here. Uh, Pietra is a one stop shop for your e commerce or for your e commerce brands. We're focusing we're focusing this um, this webinar, and and this is also going to be re repurposed as a podcast. Um, really about like the operation side to scale on your brands, the manufacturing um, the manufacturing side, how to find the right, the, the right manufacturer. Uh, the finance side, when does it make sense to like even think about inventory financing and also what are the different options or things to look out for? And of course, like the, the, the fulfillment side, the um, all about your 3PL and and what and what to look for as well from a 3PR, 3PL standpoint. And also, um, also, what are some of the costs that that are associated with fulfillment as you scale, as you scale your e-commerce brand? Um, so I know I, I did like, uh, so, so we, we have here, uh, Pernay and also Ro, um, Pernay is the founder and CEO of Manufactured. Ro is the founder and CEO of, uh, Pietra. Um, I know I did like a really brief introduction on Manufactured. Maybe, maybe we'll start off with Ro, if you don't mind. I know I kind of put my own words on Pietra, but if you want to, uh, explain Pietra in your own words, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so we are a platform that helps entrepreneurs start and operate their businesses and we live in the e-com space and our mission is to enable the next 100 million entrepreneurs in the world um we believe that a lot of people in every region of the world want to start a business and have an idea and a lot of that is stifled by um the steps that you need to take to bring that business and that idea to life um and so what we've done is we've taken all the parts of the supply chain and the steps to start and operate a business online. And we've tried to make it turnkey. So my favorite example is, let's say you are um, a fashion student who's always been um, excited to launch their own line of denim. Let's just say I'll make it up. Um, you can come to Pietra and you can find denim factories through our marketplace and talk to them and design samples and you use all of our tools to work with factories and pay them and um, design your products. We then provide a turnkey fulfillment center. So after you're done making, you know, your samples and you order a production run, um, you can click a few buttons and like Amazon, you can just send it to us and we'll handle all of your storage and fulfillment to anywhere in the world from your website. Um, and then of course we build a bunch of software to allow you to set up a website, market your product um, and grow your business online. And our goal is that, um, everyone should have access to these entrepreneurial tools um, to build a business and, and enrich their lives. Cool. No, that's awesome. That's 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 great. Really appreciate you you kind of sharing um, um, how you're building Pietra and as well as um, kind of being a one stop shop for uh, for for entrepreneurs. Um, I guess we're going to really focus on entrepreneurs that have a product, um, have demand for their product are scaling, um, are currently, or are, are currently scaling. They're seeing, you know, um, their sales increase, um, over, over time, month to month. Um, and when does it make sense? And probably these entrepreneurs from the very beginning are, are really using cash in order to finance, um, their inventory just because they don't maybe not have access to the debt markets. Right. Um, um, a, a debt, uh, a lender might not, you know, underwrite a, um, a entrepreneur with just an idea, right. Or, or, or at the kind of very beginning before they have a product. Um, so, um, it, it if this is a case for you and your brand and, and also, by the way, like I, I should say this too, like, we really want to try to make this webinar like as helpful as possible for all those that are able to attend live. So if you do have questions, like, please, please shoot them into the Q and a, and we're, and, and, um, if it's obviously operations inventory related, like we'll, we'll definitely get to them. Um, or, or, or I'll make sure we at least try to get to them. Uh, so, so please, please use that, uh, let that, uh, Q and a to your advantage, um, if you are listening live. Um, but it, in this kind of scenario, at what point, at what point should you, should you be thinking about using debt in order to finance your inventory? If you're a brand and typically when, when would you have kind of access to the debt markets? Maybe Pernay, we'll start with you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so people always feel like 
debt and equity are fungible tools in ways to actually finance their business. But most interesting thing about an inventory cycle or a physical product is if you don't have a predictable date, you will turn your inventory into cash, like some approximation up to 80% predictability in how you'll turn your inventory into cash. And you don't, ha and you, if you have an understanding of how much cash it will generate after you've paid your fees, that's when you should go raise debt for your inventory. Otherwise, you are raising debt to kick the can down the road. A lot, a lot of times we find e-commerce companies who come to manufacture, who have a great product that's succeeding in the market because people want to buy it. And we find out that the reason why they're coming to us is because they owe their vendors a shit ton of money and they want to replace their vendor debt with actual manufactured debt. And the reason they're doing that is because they did not actually bake in the fulfillment cost, the marketing cost, the operating cost, the overhead cost, and the cost of the goods. They couldn't raise equity to be able to subsidize those costs while they were proving out the market for their product. And they essentially figured out how to actually get credit terms from the vendors because the volume was going up because they have a good product. But they essentially did not budget for the cost above the cost of goods in terms of getting it to the customer in the market. And that that is sitting on the vendor's head now, not on their head, because they're rolling the vendor's cash or settles cash or Amplus cash or someone's cash to basically figure out how to actually get out of this debt trap. And then they're coming to manufacture it because they still have a growth trajectory that's really interesting and really compelling. They just have no control of their costs. So the two things are very important. You need to have a predictable inventory cycle that says, hey, if I buy this inventory on day one, by day 90, it turns into cash. But you also need to know what goes, what costs go into turning that cash and what you're going to use that cash for and what's left at the end of that cash. And it's, there's no right answer there. And it's not easy. And it's really, really hard to generate a high margin, high profitability product that's actually flying off the shelves, that has a low CAC that allows you to actually bring people in over and over, have a repeat rate and be able to find a vendor that delivers on time. It is not easy. So hats off to people who actually make it work. But to me, that's when debt comes in. Otherwise, debt will destroy your business. No, that's that's really helpful. And I have a couple like follow-up questions from there. But um, but Ro, how about you? How do you think about when you think about um um the brands that you're obviously working with and partnered with and using uh Pietra? At what point do these brands from your state, since I know that you know um brands are you know starting their brands on Pietra and kind of growing and scaling through uh Pietra and the and, and the platform that you're building? Um, at what point are you seeing that it kind of makes sense to actually think about debt? Yeah, good, good question. And we work with like, like you're mentioning, um, people from the idea stage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then by the time for I gets them to, to, as we're working with them, they already have these things flying off the shelf. And so when, when our customers think about debt or how we, you know, coach them and build the tools is we are a platform that offers these tools. And we know there's risk in any venture. Um, and often what happens is people are, you know, of course they want to take someone's money and, and start their business, but that's very hard to get. So they self-finance it, right? It's very hard to underwrite someone who's like, I have an idea for sponges um, and, you know, cool sponges or whatever. So a lot of people um, will try and launch their business bootstrapped, right? Friends and family. And, we we did something where we recently launched a crowdfunding platform because what we realized was, you know, A, it's very long to go to the government and ask for your first loan. And then it's it's increasingly harder and more expensive if you go to these, you know, long tail of providers um, that are going to give you some money that you can use for your business. And so what we say to people is like, how can you de-risk your business and your sales as much as possible with the lowest amount of money? And we don't see a lot of people... Um, that will be jumping into raising debt to bootstrap their business. I think the the what we see is that they use their credit cards and friends and family and they save up and they start. And then the first time it hits them like an oh shit moment is exactly what I said, which is they finally struggled and their thing is selling. And there's someone who went from just having an idea to trying to figure out how to manage their costs as they scale up. And the number one thing that they know is that people want their product. They know almost nothing else. And they start getting, you know, fearful 
It's like, do I need to go to the bank? Do I need to ask for a loan? Do I need to go to the suppliers? Do I know to go to Shopify Capital? Whatever it may be. And because these people are so um, are often um, undereducated in the space, they will be susceptible to getting hooked by one of these people, right? And then, and then they haven't done the math. They just know that like a thousand people want their product next week and they don't know what to do. And they think they're, their factories are their friends and they think the banks are their friends. And, and so they, and, and they're like, we need to get out of this fulfillment center. We need to go worldwide. We know all this stuff. I saw my Shopify dashboard. There's someone in Australia that wants to buy our product and it's our fastest growing region. And so our conversations is take a step back and really think about what your goals are. If you can't calculate it, go and, and build the muscle to be able to calculate what you need. And there are a lot of, I call them money mart solutions where it's like very expensive and someone will give you money or you will find a way to do this, but there are implications to it. And it ends up being more of a discussion on how do they learn how real businesses work. And again, the ones that don't quickly realize that there's a formula to how to run a business. There's like a smart way. And then there's all the traps and it's very, very similar to like credit card debt right? Which is like, you can go find a credit card that you could like put inventory on your credit card. And you can kind of do this in some game across regions, like fairly easily. Um, but that doesn't mean that your business is going to be an enduring business that lasts. So a lot of our discussions come with like, do you actually need this money? And are you just looking at one metric? Or do you need to go work with professionals to figure out um, what your plans are for, you know, 2024 and 2025? And then they would say, we, we don't have plans for 2024 and 2025. And then Pranay would say, like, you should know exactly, like, when you're going to take your inventory and turn it into cash. So our discussions are more less about go use this vendor or go use that vendor or um, uh, you should do this or you shouldn't. But it's more like, are you ready for what you're about to sign up for? Because once you move from credit cards and, you know, your life savings to someone else is giving you money to fuel this, um, it's a completely different ballgame. Um, and then, yeah. honestly, the last thing I'll say, and Pranay, you could jump in, which is like, when we do talk to people, what we find is like, once they understand, they're, they're more willing to put their own money in or spend a little bit of time being a little bit smaller to make sure that their business works because they know like, it's kind of like a one-way door, right? Once you take someone else's money, you're, you've taken someone else's money. You better pay that back or they're going to be on you. And, and yeah, we just find that a lot of people are like, okay, okay, given the constraints that I now know, Maybe I don't need to expand Australia and India next year. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe we should like take a step back and work with manufacturer.com and like figure this out in America first. And I'm like, yeah, maybe a smart idea. Um, so I, what are you gonna say? I, I swear, like I, I think about this like every week or every month, which is like we should create an open source calculator that is just sitting out there as a free tool. And like you get to put in your purchase data, your sales data, connect your Shopify, connect your QuickBooks. Are you ready for debt? Yes or no? Green answer, red answer. And like essentially the data tells you. Like your business is not ready for prime time yet. Just keep bootstrapping for six more months. And then it'll also show you where you need to add and, and like add and like to subtract your expenses. Like how do you streamline it? Like those are data numbers that people don't need to be involved in without human and loop. And you could basically tell them you're not ready. And that's okay because we say no to 85% of the people we talk to. And the reason we say yeah. no is not because the people don't have a great product. It's not because they're not growing. It's because they just don't have a grasp of unit economics. And we are telling them, here is what we see in your data. And we ask them questions. We're very, very kind and sweet and nice about it because these people are like hauling a rock up the mountain. And they're hauling a rock up the mountain while building a tire and a wheel. And they want the wheel to go down the other side. But you're starting with a boulder, turning it into a wheel as you take it up the mountain. And we want you to know how much effort it takes to get to the top of the mountain. We're on the other side. We're waiting for you to get there so we could take it on the other side. You're pulling, pushing them up the mountain. So you're doing God's work right now. Yeah, I love the day about source calculator. We should definitely do that. I honestly I think that that piece translates to many parts of the business. I think, you know, we have startup tools where you can launch a company and you don't even have to buy inventory, right? We have these print-on-demand tools. Um, and even on the fulfillment side, right? We tell people that, you know, there's a lot of money to be saved on using Pietro fulfillment but everyone shouldn't be using a fulfillment center, right? If you have 25 candles that you want to sell on Etsy or Shopify, like don't think about debt. Don't think about a fulfillment center. Like go focus on, also don't spend $3,000 on building a website. You know, like your job at this stage is to figure out how to get to the next step and, and yep. de-risk yourself. And I love that you turn, turn away 85% of people. Cause like, 
The other way to think about it is there are predatory lenders out there, for example, that will turn away 0% of people, but mm -hmm. it will screw that, that, you know, business over in the long term. So good on you for not screwing these people over. Cause you know, Brennan, if you gave, you can give away money past. It's like drugs. <laughs> like mm -hmm. people will take the money and they'll use the money, you know? Yeah. Um, the what they don't know is the implications of that, of, of taking that money. Right. And there's a lot of structures right. in place that will, um, uh, prevent your business from succeeding, but personally or professionally um, to a certain degree. And I think companies, businesses like shows like Shark Tank and all those things actually paint a very interesting survivor bias cute picture of what it's like out there when you're not seeing 99% of these people actually put in their life savings and come out the other side in two years with nothing. Um, it's terrible. And we talk to a few of those people out there and it's just not for the faint of heart. And I don't think people actually fully understand what they're getting themselves into when you're trying to build a high margin, high gross, high velocity physical product spread. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, think, I think these are all great points. I think, you know, you know, obviously, um, a lot of, uh, um, love to know like both of your perspectives when it comes to, um, building e-commerce brands in terms of what gross margin, what kind of those numbers need to be in terms of actually being a sustainable business. And because if, if your gross margins aren't great, right. And I remember Pranay, I think when, when, when you answered the first question, you were, you were talking about how you might not be able to, to, uh, to bring on debt just because your margins aren't there. But then is that actually like a great business? Do you actually have something there because your pricing is actually maybe cheaper than maybe let's say competitors. And, um, and so you actually, it, people might be buying your product maybe based on price, not because of, uh, maybe the actual product that you're, that you're doing. And so do you actually have like, even if it's maybe flying off the walls, do you actually have like a real business there because the margins are there? So I guess I'll start with like my first questions in terms of what kind of gross margins make sense in terms of, and also all the different, and and how to think about margin um, and the and, and the different kind of costs that that, that you have that um, maybe entrepreneurs um, aren't thinking through uh, potentially on the variable cost side, and then and then two like how do you how do you identify if your margins aren't there if it is if it's saying if it still can be like a real business? So you have to think about three things in a product, and I'm not talking just about e-commerce. I'm talking about wholesale and big box as well because mm -hmm. you have to be able to create pricing structures that scale as you grow. Manufacturer's goal is to take a $1 million customer and scale it to $100 million. That's the goal. We want every $1 million SMB to be a $100 million business in eight to 10 years. And if they're not going to, if they're going to get there, you are going to need multiple channels. So you're going to have to price your product to make sure that you're not just making a margin when you sell D2C, but you're selling or making a margin when you sell wholesale, when you're selling global, when you're selling distributors. That's the first part. So pricing is key to understanding your margins because if you make a 40% gross margin, and you go to a big box retailer and they want a 50 to 60% gross margin, you're not going to sell under cost to them. And you're screwed now because you've missed out on all that volume that you couldn't get because your pricing was not baked in the right way. So many DTC brands in the mid-2010s were like, hey, let's just make a 30% gross margin and get out there. Who cares about CAC? Who cares about LTV? Facebook is cheap. Google is cheap. Let's just get out there and buy everything. And then they go to Nordstrom's and they want to build, put their product in Nordstrom's. And Nordstrom's will redo a 65% IMU or a 60% IMU. And they're like, what's an IMU? And they don't know what an IMU is. They don't know that they have to price the product at 40% of at wholesale so that they can retail at 100 cents. And they're like, well, we make 30%. Why isn't that good enough for you? And the retailer laughs at them and goes on their job. Now what has happened is Facebook and Google have now, well, Meta and Google have become that 60% IMU at the digital end. They are the new big box mm -hmm. retailers extracting the retail value, or the, the retail margin from you in terms of CAC and LTV. So the, the margin begs the question is what are your overhead costs, what are your marketing costs, what are your operating costs, and what are your acquisition costs are, and then do you have money left over to put into new R&D on a $100 product? Are you able to, so some role, everyone thinks 70% gross margins. I don't know, Ronak, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, definitely not below 50. <laughs> yeah. So start with 50 with an improvement margin to 70 because remember calls are very high when you start out. So you say, I can keystone this. So keystone is 2X always. So always think of double keystone. So if you buy at 25 and you can sell at 50 wholesale, you have a 50% margin on there. And if you can sell it at 50 wholesale and $100 retail, you 50% over there. And if you think that the $50 going to Nostrum is the same $50 you put out for acquisition costs, marketing costs, all that stuff, and you can save 25% on that, a 25% 
free cash margin on which you put your expenses and then you're able to get your money out of it. Feels like a decent margin in my mind. But then again, you have to figure out whether the product can sustain it, whether there are competitors. This is where brand storytelling, vibes, you know, merchandising, design, creation, all that stuff comes into play. Because if you look at the best performing brands in the world, the brand means nothing. The brand means everything and the product means nothing. And, and I think the, the, the first thing you said there was very important, which is not everyone should be gunning for the billion dollar exit in this space. Like this is something that we have learned through the years at Pietra, which is, you know, investors will often ask me like, what's the what's the biggest success story, right? Like who's, you know, and, and what I would say is success in small business, maybe medium-sized business, um, is not always directly tied to the highest sales. Like you will be up at night trying to figure out you know, how to get into Walmart and make sure your margins scale and they don't get compressed. And there are many people, like like thousands of people, let's say, that are running these businesses on, on Pietra that are small SMBs that are, you know, mommy bloggers in Utah that sell an awesome product at a decent margin to, you know, the greater mom community. <laughs> and, and it's important for people to realize, like, uh, you know, wh who is that guy that says, uh, what is your version of rich, right? Like everyone should ask themselves in, in business, what's their version of success? Because you can have a, an awesome life just running a profitable small business, selling something um, and, and, you know, trying to build that brand awareness in your local, in your region. Um, and yes, it's slow and it's, you know, a labor of love, but it might also be something that you're okay with and you might not want to stay up at 1 a.m. at night negotiating with your factories to get better margins on the same product. And you might be okay with 30, 40% gross margins. Or in a lot of people's case, you know, I bought for X and I sold for Y and I don't really do much any other, other than that, other than go to parties and talk to my friends. That is okay. I think what we're both saying is you just don't want to play a game that you're not equipped to play, right? And that's what I tell them. Like, if you want to scale it up to be the next great thing, like, awesome. For every one of those, there's an Allbirds as well. Like your rocket can get off the launch pad and exploding on <laughs> right? Casper, it can get off a launch pad. It can get really close to the atmosphere and it could still explode before it gets to space. Or even worse, it gets to space and then right after it gets into space, it also explodes. And, you know, there's, there's, that is a very important lesson that I think um, a lot of people have learned, which is, Yes, if you want to do, if you want to build a specific type of business, you have to adhere to these rules. But no one's saying that you need to build that specific type of business. Um, you can make money on the other end. Just you know, be smart about what game you're playing. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I know this isn't like uh, a conversation around you know exits or um, or or as much like valuations, but it should be pointed out that you know inventory based businesses like they are they are um, and this certainly. Um, um, things have kind of gone back down to reality over the past, you know, couple of years. But from a valuation perspective, they're very different to you know software businesses. Um, typically, it's uh, from like a multiple perspective. Um, also, maybe valuing a lot more EBITDA and actually positive um, rather than uh, rather than software. So you have to achieve you know a lot bigger revenue, for example, in order to reach like the same milestones, for example, maybe as a software business. But it's a conversation for another day, probably. Um, what um, when it comes to um, um, well, I mean, at what point though, like if you're a brand, I understand it's like 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 a margin question. Also, understand in terms of like your turns or um or velocities or you know repeat rate however you want to kind of uh, qualify it for but from like a size perspective if you're a brand like when does it make sense like is there is there kind of like a number where it maybe makes sense to at least consider um uh consider using debt um in in, in order to finance um inventory yes yeah perfect Otherwise, we wouldn't be in business, right? When we talk to a customer, we look at three things. We look at predictable demand curves, which is, do you have this demand set up? It's either in terms of purchase orders from big box retailers or credit insured receiver retailers who say, yes, we'll buy this product. And this could be someone who just started up, who's been in a big company, knows what they're doing, got it, went out and got purchase orders, has connections and says, we're going forward with this. You can go from zero to 10 million very quickly like that. 
The second is you working on this for five years, you work through Pietra, you basically built out a business, a model, an audience, and you know what your customers are looking for. You work your you worked your tail off trying to get it to product market fit. And you know, if I put 10,000 units into this still, it'll come out in three months. If I put 25,000, it'll still be in three months because here's how much demand is going or unmet. I have so many customers who are coming to me. Every time I have a pre-order, it sells out, those sorts of things then you know that you're hitting artificial limits which have been set on you by your own working capital constraints. And then the third time you look at demand is when you see that there is international demand accretive to what you're doing or you have additional products people are asking for that are accretive to your current product where you might have a very stable cash flow cycle on your current product, but you have no extra cash to put into additional products. Those are the times when you think that you need some sort of, uh, you have a, what do you call them, uh, inflection points, where you think that you can actually take advantage of the opportunity. That's when you bring debt in to try and supercharge your business. You don't want to dilute equity. It takes 90 days to build out equity raises, maybe 180 days in current scenarios. Some people may not even give it to you, may not take too much equity of your company. And you don't want to be in that business. You want to be in the business of continuously running your business and just using numbers to tell a story. That's when you go out and raise debt. Yeah, and I think uh, to to build on that, I think from from our experience, it really it is person to person, business to business. But it start you can see that people start getting nervous when they have to start maxing out their credit cards, and they're like, maybe I should do a wild wire transfer. What's ACH? And then they're like, oh, this feels like a big sum. And then you know, once you get into like hundred thousand dollar POs, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like now it's starting to get scary. Like if twenty thousand dollars of this stuff gets lost, like who the hell is going to pay for this, right? And then you start saying like, hey, there's like you know shrinkage, and they're like, okay, now I could really start seeing my bank account getting drained. And and what I see is when someone hits like when someone goes very quickly from like zero to five hundred k in sales, right? They like strike gold, they go viral, um, they get that first shock of okay. 500k in sales i'm like kind of excited like this is definitely gonna work i can own a million dollar brand right that's what they would think to themselves and then between the 500k to a million i like to say shit starts getting real right your your shipping costs better be configured on your shopify expertly because you could lose a lot of money if you're like misconfigured in some way and you're gonna have to pay the fulfillment center and that's coming out of your bank account auto charged at the end of the month or whatever it is and so that's when i see people if you want a, a, a range, Mike, is like, that's when I see people being like, okay, this is starting to be, this starting to feel like it's a lot, right? And there's like other ways that people can help them because they project that like definitely at 3 million, they're not gonna, they're not gonna be able to do it. Um, and it becomes the risk creeps in when the credit cards start getting maxed and the wire transfers end up being, you know, a big chunk of someone's bank account. Of course, different people, like different statuses can, can uh, like withstand some of that heat. But like, I've seen people, you know, up to 500K, they can kind of do this game of like, yeah, I'll be sold out for a little bit. Like I'll still re-up on it. I could be a week late with deliveries. And then as soon as you get into like the 500K up, like million range, the customers also expect you to be like a real business. Your website looks amazing. You, you have thousands of customers out there that are like talking about your brand. Then they expect you to work exactly like Nike. And you go right into the big leagues very quickly. And like, if you're three days late on a shipment, they're not saying we're sorry to you anymore. There's, or or we're, we're okay with it, right? The, you're, they're turning into like, we expect you to ship this thing, you know, across America in six days or three days or whatever it is. Um, and, and, and Mike, just to give you like a, an answer, that's what we've seen on our side, which is people start Googling, how do I get money? Um, like you and, you know, millions of other people. No, I mean, I, I, I think that those are, those are just some, um, some, some really great points. I mean, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the fulfillment side, kind of as you're, as you're growing and scaling brands, like what are, what are some of the costs um, row that you need to be, um, you need to be like, make sure that, um, you have like an understanding, uh, because when I talk to some brands, when I talk to some brands, what sometimes they don't like about, you know, three PLs is like some like the hidden costs that are, that are kind of there. So like, how do you, what do you, um, if you can kind of give us like kind of like the stack of like the, the, the different costs that are associated with, with three PL, I, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, definitely. I think the to, to set up that question, I think it's it's worth me taking a minute to explain where I came from. Um, so one of my inspirations for starting Pietra was watching one of my friends start a watch brand. And as a pure outsider to e-commerce, and I was like a technology guy, um, 
you know, in tech companies, watching my friend stitch together this business, having to talk to all these people and not understanding how much things are going to cost and how to predict stuff, turned a smart person, like a college educated master's student, into someone who I saw being like, I don't know, like 30% of this is like very risky and like unclear. And that made me think in a world like e-commerce, when most things are like commodity services, like fulfillment and shipping, how is it possible that there's so much, so many like cloak and dagger moments when setting up your business? So one of the things we looked at with Pietra and how we set up our pricing structure is we looked at people saying, yes, there's all these hidden fees. When, when we say hidden fees, I mean, most people don't think of their all-in fulfillment costs, including things like other fulfillments will charge you per parcel to receive it. Um, if you need to put an insert into your package, they'll charge you 20 cents extra to insert the thing. Um, if your thing requires unboxing or kidding in some way, you're going to charge by the hour. And, you know, the fuel surcharges aren't there because it's variable. So all the numbers that you get in as a small business, especially a first-time business owner, are like certainly not what you're going to pay. And there's a few companies out there that, that you know, for better or for worse, do a pretty good job at being upfront with their pricing, but there's always hidden fees. And so, you know, there's, you need to think about it like, if you are going to pay someone in your, if you ran this internally, like a salaried employee, um, you're probably gonna have to pay for that outsourced in some way. Unless you work with someone like Pietro, we're a little bit different and we try to remove those fees. But then it's also worth mentioning that a lot of the fulfillment industry is I think fundamentally broken. Where I talk to a brand owner and they say, fulfillment fees only go up. It only increases in cost over time. And why? It's because these companies, these fulfillment companies need to make more money each year than the last. And so there's like a bunch of tech companies that are like, we need 60% gross margins on running a fulfillment center. We have some technology in here. And every year they call them, what is it? GRIs, general rate increases. I'm like, wow, what a broken industry where every year automatically you just have to pay more general rate increases. And so you see a lot of these brands go to mom and pops who don't have general rate increases. So, right, there's these like venture-backed fulfillment centers that will increase their price every year. And every brand's like, this is so dumb. Like I have to pay more every year. And then the whole cottage industry of mom and pop fulfillment centers, which is thriving in the U.S., um, is born. Because they don't need to increase their margins every single year and don't have a board of directors and are okay making some amount of money um, running a family operation. So what Pietra has done is we have said, we will provide a bundle service to all of our members. So if you're a card-carrying member of Pietra, it's like Costco. We have told the world we are not going to plan to make a lot of money on fulfillment. We're going to do cost plus pricing for this business unit. All the costs are upfront. You know our costs. You know our markup. And it's going to be better than almost anyone else in the U.S. And the only reason we can offer that upfront pricing, no hidden like no hidden fees, and we don't change our pricing very often. Um, like last year, we didn't have any increases in rates is because like Costco, we're not trying to make money only on that one thing. We don't need to be like, you sent 20 boxes to us, I'm charging you a hundred bucks. <laughs> like that is not how Pietro makes money. We're a tech company that makes money on the software and the subscription and like Costco, they don't make money on the hot dogs. So it would be very annoying if every year you went to Costco and the hot dogs were more money, right? But like the CEO of Costco is like, we don't need to make our money on hot dogs. People come, they buy our memberships and they shop in our stores and we keep prices low. And that's how Pietro provides value. And it's it's something that I think the world has needed for a long time because we went through an, an era of tech and then Pranay's probably going to laugh at this, which is like tech founders convincing people that technology would drive down the cost of fulfillment. And it turns out we're still not there, right? It's like the, it turns out the unit economics of running a fulfillment center are closer to when only humans did it than when only robots do it. Right. And I was talking to one of the, yeah. Oh yeah. I was talking to one of the biggest <laughs> fulfillment centers and we, by the way, we see this in our fulfillment center where trust me, I'm a techno optimist. Right. And I'm like, huh, like, you know how hard it would be to get a robot to do exactly what we did here. And like, you go to a human, you're like, just take that off the shelf and like sit here and do this thing. And you're like, okay, like humans are pretty, pretty flexible, but here's the interesting thing for the listeners to, 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 to understand which is 
one of our one of our investors and advisors runs one of the biggest fulfillment operations on the East Coast. And we were asking about full robotics and, and, you know, how do you drop the cost of filament down to like cents, you know, instead of dollars or whatever it is. And he had all these robots going around his fulfillment center. And he was like, you know, what's funny, bro. All I really did was trade, you know, operators for engineers from this startup that builds these robots because the robots break. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So you're still paying a human. It's just the human is just fixing the robots instead of going and picking and packing in the aisles, right? And I'm like, okay. So he's like, net, net, the productivity can be the same. And net, net, I'm paying a human. And then also then I will admit that paying an engineer is way more expensive than paying, you know, an operator in the warehouse. Um, and so it's, it's really funny when I tell people, which is like, this is a commoditized service that you shouldn't be sold that it's 10x better. And you should go and look at someone being like, what's the main solution that I need to, for my business? And where can I get it for the best price with the best experience, right? And everything else that people are selling you around the edges is probably false. Um, and that's, like, that's just my learning. And, and anyone who cares about that, that's like how we run our fulfillment centers. If we tell people, how are you the lowest rates in all of America? And we say, we just don't plan on making money off this part of our business. Right. For the last hundred years, it's very hard to make money off this part of the business. We hope that you do something else and we'll provide value in another way. And that's how we do upfront pricing and the lowest pricing. Yeah, I think um, I think one thing that wrote up touched on that I think you should do is the greatest favor you can do in SMB as they're starting and growing the business is to tell them the truth and tell them facts and show them what it really costs instead of making them feel comfortable and telling them what they want to hear. And I think that the hidden costs come to people because the truth is the truth and it's going to bite them someplace or the other. The worst thing you can do is show them something rosy upfront, which the American public is so used to seeing in all consumer and retail or advertising is that the only thing they're trying, because remember these SMBs are still humans. They're still one person or two people or five people running a company. It's not like a big conglomerate where they have corporations who have systems and policies. These are two people thinking what they're going to do personally with the bank account now that they own just because they have an entity around them doesn't mean the human is not making the decision. And all they're thinking is what's the scam here? Like, how am I, how are you screwing me? That's all they're thinking about. And if you were telling them here is where it is in simple, plain English, and you're showing them a number and a data, now they have to do their own diligence and you should be like, go out and do your diligence. Just like Pietra, manufacturer did not change its rates last year. We did not increase our interest costs, even though interest rates went up 6%. We did not change our management fees. We did not change our operating costs. We did not hike our prices. We actually lowered prices for customers over the last 10 years over the last two years. And the reason we lower prices is because we get better, we get better leverage, we do better things. We have open conversations with our customers all the time. We have really hard conversations with all our customers talking about where their prices should go, where their costs are gonna go, how the profits are gonna go. SMBs make bad decisions in their own businesses because they don't have all the data they need to make around it. But if you are not working with those SMBs to understand what the rationale for those decisions are and giving them the facts up front, it's really hard for them to trust you. And trust is the key in all of these interpretations of prices you're talking about. Anything to do with the 3PL fulfillment, hidden costs, all that stuff, it all boils down to trusting who you work with. Yeah, I mean, I think that those are, those are some really, I mean, really great points about uh, about fulfillment um, uh, and as well as, you know, the history of uh, Pietra and obviously um, what, what we've been doing at, at a manufacturer when it comes to, to our prices. But, you know, what... What we think through, like, I guess back to that point about, you know, maybe not being as aware of all the different costs that are kind of associated with the inventory of your business. Um, I think what, what can be really challenging is let's say you have a brand, it's, you know, caught fire, you're doing really well. It's kind of like selling um, from your e-commerce site or, 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 you know, maybe in wholesale, but, but, but I know obviously Pietra's um, focus on e-commerce so we can stick with e-commerce, but um, like when you when this happens and maybe like your because because there are hidden costs um uh associated or not hidden maybe you just didn't know about uh costs or or didn't kind of price those in what what is the right way to actually in increase the prices of your actual products as they sell because i'd imagine that's like pretty challenging that might be like one of the main reasons that you didn't know about that actually is a reason why it's selling so well somebody told me once you can only go down in price you can never go up in price yeah <laughs> I think that's true. 
I think that's true. I think, um, well, actually, let me, let me, for this for discussion, um, I think uh, before starting this company, I was, um, I was, uh, I did, I was the PM for Uber Pool. Um, awesome team there. We all built it together, but um, it's funny. It's like, it's so much harder to make something more expensive, which everyone knows. But then the other part to that is never underestimate people's willingness to like want or expect something to be priced lower than it should be. Or said another way, like people always just wanted, like at some point we were running Uber pool at like $3 for like a trip in San Francisco, like $5 in New York. And we still found that people still wanted it to be cheaper. It's like, at what point do you want it to be like free, you know? And so accurately pricing something is so important just in general for because these business owners don't understand often that things in the world cost money it's like people want movie pass to work and it was like impossible for it to work and if you ask them they'd still say man i wish it was half price it's like yeah like and i say this to like people all the time it's like who do you think like made sure your container got from guatemala or whatever to like where you are in the world like some human that we had to pay did that and so our pricing is reflective of that. And that's, I think, a, a thing of like part of the you can only go down and you can only go um, down in price on up is because people don't want to believe that they have to pay more for something that you were already doing and not charging for. And it's a very difficult thing that we learned at Pietro. So, man, consumer psychology. Oh, my God. It's, uh, it makes you laugh sometimes. <laughs> One, one thing I will say at a B2B level versus a B2C level is if you are an SMB selling a product to a large enterprise or to a retailer or something like that, you can unload the weight of inflation from your shoulder to somebody else's shoulder over a period of time by making them responsible for the price hikes and them deciding what your retail price looks like versus doing the reverse and taking responsibility for the retail price yourself. So if you think about it, if you started at a low price that you basically mm -hmm. sold out to, there are other ways to actually mitigate that. You could phase out a product and add new products. You could change products. You could relaunch a new brand. You could supplement a brand. You could do you know, one-offs. You could do collabs. You could do a lot of different things to get there. But again, the elasticity of pricing that you have to be able to accommodate these changes is limited because you cannot go on and add a 30% price hike saying, oops, my bad, we didn't add inflation for three years. Here's your new price. You will have attrition 100%. Not because people don't appreciate your brand, but because they think you are trying to price gouge them because that is the environment we live in right now. And I don't want to get into a political conversation because that's not you know, productive for this call, but you are going to see more and more of this happening where a brand either is anchoring high and can go slightly lower, but a brand trying to go upwards has to go through these thousand hoops to get to that higher price they need to get to which is why people question. So you'll see people reducing the volume of product inside their container for them to support the same price. You've seen this happen during COVID. Uh, people started reducing the amount of ketchup they had in the bottle just by going from six and a half ounces to say five ounces as the same bottle size, mm -hmm. but basically trying to make this bottle slimmer so that they could sell it at the same price. So they had a 30% increase in price. Those are the kinds of gimmicks that brands are going to have to go to to be able to anchor slightly higher as they grow. No, that's a great example. That's a great example that you're kind of pricing in, in um, like that same bottle um, or that bottle at that price. But but of course, it actually is a different bottle um, and it, it actually or contains um, um, uh, less the product than, than it previously did. Um, well, I know I kind of bounced around a little bit here. Um, um, I know we, we talked a bit about finance. We obviously talked a little bit about inventory financing, talked a bit about fulfillment. Um, haven't talked as much about manufacturing, so wanted to focus the final few minutes that we have here um, on the manufacturing side. Um, it seems like you know, with the global supply chain um, uh, crisis that's happened um, over you know the past couple of years, um, what we found is businesses are kind of rethinking how they can how they can bring their supply chains closer to where their brands are physically. Um, uh, so what we what we see this as a kind of cultivate as you know. A large uh, and emerging trend is nearshoring, which there's now you know quite a few uh, publications about nearshoring. We have one um, as well. But um, what what factors 
should businesses consider when evaluating the adoption of like a near shorting uh near shorting strategy for their manufacturing needs every time Brandon, you're the expert here every time a 10 million dollar brand thinks that guidelines for near shoring that a billion dollar brand follows you know a pigeon is killed somewhere in cold blood. <laughs> <laughs> i haven't heard that one that was a good one pigeon is killed somewhere in cold blood damn dude uh <laughs> Yeah, like, that's a... it, it, the number of SMEs who think that the guidelines that follow the cost inefficiencies of a billion dollar brand or a ten billion dollar brand apply to them, it's amazing they don't appreciate the switching costs, the time costs, the disruption to their business, and the actual gross amount, the the actual solid dollars they pay in additional tariffs from the vendor they have right now with the convenience they have to just keep their engine rolling, to basically consider a time shift. Yeah, it really comes down to like the <laughs> the one of the biggest problems is the small merchants. They want to be successful. And if they read the internet, it's skewed towards different success stories and failure stories. And I feel, you know, one of my good friends um, who runs a startup called Merit uh, here in New York, shout out to his company. Um, and I'm going to shout him out. But he was saying the problem with reading advice is that uh, <laughs> the problem with reading advice on the internet is that it's 50-50 split. So for every article that you read from a tech guru that you should focus all of your resources on one thing and nothing else, there's an equal you know, uh, blog post by another tech guru that's like, um, make sure that you increase your surface area for luck or something like that. And you're like, the problem is <laughs> if you read all the advice that's available, they're just gonna cancel each other out. And then, you, and then it comes down to like, but what about your business? You know, cool. You read all of Quora and we've all read the medium posts and you follow the same tech gurus on Twitter. Um, now what, you know, they've all canceled each other out. So it's, it's kind of the same thing, which is um, I say like, you can read as many articles as you want about how Amazon needs to near shore their X business, or they need to do in order to expand overseas, you need to have onshore banking or whatever you want to read up about on the internet. There's a very high probability that none of that applies to your business. Very, very, very high. Right. But from their perspective, I would say as someone who was also, you know, I'm a big fan of Internet research is uh, what are you going to do? Where else do you look? Right. You talk to your factory. They're going to give you their version of the world. You know, there's no re and, and places like manufacturer, places like Pietra, places like Shopify. Like we're trying to build that corpus of data. So hopefully people can get educated. Um, it doesn't exist in the way it should today. Um, but it still baffles my mind at like, if you just want basic answers to things like that, how hard it is to find on the internet. And it's not, it's not hard to find content on the internet. It's hard to find the right answer. Right. And so maybe there's like a wrapper or an add-on service that manufacturer.com can offer people education as a service. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nine, 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 Mike and I talked about it earlier today. We talked about oh, just learning and education, which is like 90% of the time. Don't break, don't fix what's not broken. And if it's not broken, don't fix it. And so nearshoring is great for three reasons. You have a product that can be assembled nearshore from components that you could flip at any time for the price you bought them. If you can't do that, then now you're stuck with components in a nearshore location stranded from a local market where they had value and you can't flip those components if your business goes sideways. And secondly, you need to have a product that can absorb the higher labor costs and the assembly costs. And so that means you need to have a sufficiently medium tech product that can be made from components and assembled. Because let's get it clear. Everyone talks about bringing manufacturing back to the US. It's not fucking happening. <laughs> it might happen in high tech places. It might happen in Silicon places. Aaron Slodov might build an amazing way to create, you know, metal stamping and stuff like that. And, you know, and recent Horowitz could talk about all the progressive they want on federal government budgets, because what used to happen is the feds would basically incubate a uh, technology and the VCs would commercialize it. Now the VCs incubate a technology and the feds commercialize it. And that's what the manufacturing hype is about is how can I sell my, uh, how can I sell my bags to the federal government and have them subsidize the entire manufacturing economics? You look at SpaceX, you look at Varda, you look at all these companies. That's essentially what it is. I'll put 30 million in for the federal feds to give me 300 million or $3 billion. That's the level of manufacturing that that narrative works on. If you are making a candle, do not do that unless your candle can be assembled by 
not great people with not great skills because the skill level of people labor in the US and even Mexico is like one tenth of the scale overseas because that's how we've created these ecosystems over 50 years. The cost of your candle to sell it has to basically be one is to four or something like that. And you need to be able to sustain inventory on this side of the ocean because on that side of the ocean, those people have inventory throughput that allows them to basically sell you off the shelf stuff at few low minimums that you don't have that volume here. So you are essentially standing up your own infrastructure. Imagine the gap. Imagine if overseas manufacturing is AWS and you are creating your own server rooms, you're going back to the year 20, 2002, when every single type you basically built a startup, you had to buy the servers, you had to buy the racks, you had to buy the connectivity and essentially stand up your own website yourself. I think I think a great point that you that you said, I mean, I mean you both have said a number of great points. One of my biggest takeaways is um, on nearshoring is the the overseas like the ecosystem that then has existed there for you know over 50 years um the manufacturing ecosystem um think about how difficult it would be to try to replicate that here in the u.s um you know or or you know uh, mexico or you know um but but here in the u.s in terms of in, in terms of replicating that that whole ecosystem that you have over there um, um, when it comes to, um, you know, labor technology, what have you, um, in different categories, I'm sure that, that, that there are use cases, um, in like different, like niche categories, but, um, in terms of like for mass kind of like consumer brands, like, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're building well, a 50,000 square foot in Mexico right now. We're going live next month. And there's a, a huge number of uh, use cases. All of them are enterprise or mid-market for B2B and, mm. and, or, and you know, for enterprise customers. They're industrial customers. They're not retailer consumer. That makes sense. Um, our final question that we always ask um, is, what would you value more? Um, $100 of COGS. Let's say it's the COGS of a, a product that is selling. It's not a product that's just kind of sitting on the shelf. Or $100 cash. Ro, we will start with you. Um, what would I value more? $100 what, cash or $100 What would you prefer cash? to have? Yes. I'm always going to take the cash, baby. <laughs> I'll take $100 of cash. <laughs> if I can sell it. If I can sell it, I'll take $100 of inventory all day long. Oh, I like that. I'm super... About my ability to sell, right? Because at the end of the day, the goal for manufactured is for you to take a hundred dollar piece of in hundred dollars of inventory and turn it into one hundred and thirty dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars of cash. So to me, a hundred dollars of inventory represents one hundred and fifty dollars in cash all day, every day. Yep. And like I, I gotta learn how to sell this stuff. You know, I, I am undervaluing myself, but I, I, I love the question. Um. Yeah. No. This is great. Um. Well, we're at, we're at the end of the time. Um. Thanks everyone for uh, for joining. Um, they'll, we'll, we'll also post this um, on our website and, and YouTube. What happened on the replay? Uh, uh, if you didn't join us live, um, um, or if you want to see it again. But um, Pernay and Ro, thanks so much for, for both of you for your time. Thank Talk you so much you. for having me. Cool. Bye. Thanks for having us. All right. Bye Take everyone. Care. Bye. Bye.